Thank you again to our worship team. Thank you for all that you guys do. Uh, as we begin today, I to remind you that we've been talking about our series of uh, newer boys are working, and we've been talking over the last several weeks about who wears the crown, signifying who's in charge. And I know for, for me, and I, and I hope, I'm not the only one, but I, I know for me, uh, on Sunday morning, it's real easy to take the crown off place at the feet of Jesus. It's real hard to do that on Monday morning. And it's extremely tempting to put the crown back on on Tuesday uh, and on Wednesday. And most weeks, I come in here on Sunday morning wearing the crown. So before we talk about what, what we're going to talk about today, I just want to give you a moment in your heart to make a decision. Who's in charge of this time? Are you in charge of it? Do you get to decide what's worth receiving? Do you get to decide uh, what applies to your life? Do you get to decide uh, whether you're, uh, you're going to apply that or not? Or is, is Jesus king? Does he get to decide? Is he in charge? So I'm just going to give you a moment uh, of silence. I just encourage everybody to just bow your hands and close your eyes. And just in your own heart, just look in your own heart and, and ask yourself, uh, who's wearing the crown right now? And if it's anybody but Jesus, I just, I just challenge you, I encourage you to just in your heart take that crown off and put it at Jesus' feet. Father in heaven, I do pray for myself first that I would confess my desire and my sinful tendency to want to snatch the crown from your head and, and claim kingship for myself and for my own life and for my own family and my own finances and my own time. I just confess that that is sin. And I take that crown off right now, Father, the crown in my heart, and I place it at your feet, and I want you to be in charge. And I pray for everybody in this room, Father, that they would do the same, that they would trust you, and they would take the crown off, and, and they would place it at your feet, and they would give you the right to rule and reign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Okay. So, like I said, if you haven't been with us, we've been working through this series called uh, Normal Isn't Working. And we've talked about normal is I'm in charge. You know, we've, we've talked about all sorts of things. But today, uh, we're going to talk about normal is never enough. So in our normal tendencies, uh, our normal way of living is we live as if there's never enough. And so what I, what I think as I think about this, this topic is that in the United States, contentment has become a forgotten concept. Contentment has been a forgotten way of life. It's as, it's, if, it's as if it just simply was deemed unnecessary and faded into history. We're so effective and we're so successful. We have so much power and so much going on. We don't really need to be content. We ain't got time for that. And I got a, a few statistics. I did a little bit of research to, to kind of prove that point. I want to start by looking at our activities, our, our level of activeness. So this is the average amount in 2016 that parents spent on their students' extracurricular school activities. 
And this was according to some expenses that were compiled by the Huntington National Bank and some other nonprofit uh, communities and schools. So this is the amount of money that moms and dads are spending on their children's extracurricular activities outside of the normal school hour. Elementary age parents would spend $463 per student. If you have a junior high student, you would spend $629 per student. I'm sorry, high school parents. Uh, if you're a parent of a high school student, uh, in 2016 on average, you spent $1,124 uh, per student on extracurricular activities. And that was a 10% increase from 2015. And those numbers to me are kind of staggering. I'm thankful I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, which is the first time I've ever said that, you know. Uh, <coughs> but what these numbers don't even reflect is the, the preciousness of time. Because you can make more money. You can work an extra job or sell some stuff or, you know, God forbid, have a garage sale and make some more money. But you can't make more time. So these numbers don't reflect the amount of time that moms and dads are spending driving to practice, driving from practice, watching practice. It doesn't reflect the amount of money moms and dads are spending on specialty camps, on food, on equipment. So to me, these numbers reflect that our appetite for activeness is growing. Again, uh, that last number for high school students, that was a 10% increase. 10% in one year on money spent on extracurricular. On education, extracurricular. But I just don't want to pick my parents this morning. I want to look at, on all of us, uh, especially since we're getting close to the holidays, I want to look at our holiday spending. Uh, there's a lot of nervous laughter on the front few tables. So in 2016, this is a survey, in 2016, 56% of Americans admitted to planning on racking up credit card debt to purchase Christmas gifts. 56%. And of that 56%, 16% expected it would take them more than six months to pay off that debt. Let's keep going. According to an investment firm, T. Rowe Price, in 2016, parents were spending on average $422 per child for gifts. And it gets worse. Uh, this is the, the most staggering part to me. 25% of parents that were surveyed in 2016 were taking drastic measures, such as withdrawing money from their 401k, dipping it in emergency savings, or taking out payday loans in order to purchase holiday gifts for their friends, families, and their children. Then this last one, 58% of families surveyed failed to, to meet their holiday spending budget. So 58% went over budget on holiday spending. And looking at those numbers, to me, the, the, the clear question is why? Why do we struggle so much to embrace this idea of contentment? Why can't we, why, why do we have such an appetite for more? More activities, more gifts, more fun, more entertainment. Why? And for me, I have a simple four-letter answer for you. F-O-M-O. -O. Fear of missing out. 
fear of missing out. As human beings, we walk around with this deep fear of what if? What if my kid doesn't make the starting team? What, what, if, what if he misses the field goal because we didn't pay for that specialty, that specialty camp? Wouldn't he be embarrassed? Wouldn't I be embarrassed? What, what if I, I go to work and my coworkers have this, this, this amazing new car that, that, his, uh, fiance, that her fiancé got for, her for Christmas? What, what, if, what if everybody looks at my car and it's you know, 10 years old and they big hand the door? What if? What if I don't constantly look at my phone and somebody shares a super funny meme and I don't, I don't get it? So when we're talking about it at the Wesley, I don't know what everybody's talking about because I didn't look at my phone and know that this, this thing was being shared. What if we're constantly afraid of missing out on the things going on around us? And that's why the idea of contentment is so foreign. It's like, why would I want to be content? I got to know what's going on. I got to have the latest and greatest or I'm going to miss out. You see, Contentment is never a material problem. It's always a relational problem. I say that again. Contentment is never a material problem. It's never about learning, you know, to, to you know, manage your resources so you can have everything you want. Because you're never going to have everything you want. Because we as human beings, we just we don't have that within us. We struggle with contentment. Contentment is never a material problem. It's always a relational problem. It's always a sign of weakness uh, in a significant relationship. I love what commentary writer Warren Wearsby, I love the insight that he has on this idea of contentment. This is what he said. He said the word contentment actually means contained. And if you Google that on dictionary.com, uh, that, that definition is there. That contentment actually means contained. He goes on to say that it is a description of a person whose resources are within them. So that he does not have to depend on substitutes without. That the Greek word actually literally means self-sufficient. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I cannot help but think about Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well. These were his words. He said to her, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. Why? Why would they never be thirsty? He goes on. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of fresh water, a spring of living water gushing up to eternal life. Now let me ask you a dumb question, okay? This is a stupid question. Why didn't Jesus say... If anyone who believes in me, I'll place in them an ice cream parlor, and unto them will be unlimited scoops. <laughs> Why would he say that? I mean, who, who in here likes ice cream? Who, who in here has eaten ice cream during cold weather? Right? Right. Ice cream makes you happy. Ice cream makes you feel good, you know? Nothing better than being a brawl with a double scoop, just hanging out, right? Why wouldn't Jesus say that? I mean, ice cream is so good. He didn't say it because ice cream is 
incapable of sustaining life. Water, fresh, flowing, living water is a necessity for life. Jesus is making a point here that those who place their faith in him will have a doubt upon them a source of power and strength that is necessary for life, that will sustain their life, not make them happy. Otherwise, he would have used ice cream. He wasn't concerned with what necessarily makes life enjoyable, what makes you happy. It's what keeps you alive. So that I'm going to give you, those who put their faith in me, I will give them a capacity within them to stay alive. Now again, I want, to make a, I want to make an important distinction here. It is not you keeping yourself alive. That, that's part of our problem. We think it's up to us to make sure our life is enjoyable and that we're thriving. We think it's all up to us. That goes back to who's wearing the crown. If you're king, it is all up to you. But if Christ is king and you are his creation, it is up to him to sustain you and keep you alive. And Jesus makes that promise to the Samaritan woman. Those who make Christ their king will have within them the capacity to sustain life. See, contentment will always come down to who you trust. Who you trust. You trust yourself? So I got, man, you know, I've got like the, the iPhone 5. How am I going to communicate with anybody? Right? What am I, you know, caveman? Might as well be writing on the walls of my cave. Is it up to you? Or is it up to King Jesus to sustain your life? Who do you trust? Do you trust that the Holy Spirit will lead you to take hold of everything that is necessary for life? Not everything that you want, not everything that would make you happy, not everything that would allow you to compete with everyone else who is fearful of missing out, but do you trust that, that, that King Jesus will lead you to everything that is necessary for life? I want to again remind you that Jesus, yes, that, that God is our King, right? He's also our father. He's our king. But God is also our father. Let me read for you how King Jesus described the father in heaven. He said this in Matthew 7, 9 through 11. He said, is there anyone among you who if your child asked for bread would give a stone? Or if the child asked for a fish would give a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And again, I want to make a distinction. I think it's interesting here. That, that illustration that Jesus is giving is food. Who, if your child came to you and said, Dad, I'm hungry. We know we've all heard that a thousand times. I'm hungry, would say, oh, here's a rock. Enjoy. No, we wouldn't, because what? A rock can't 
make him not hungry anymore. He needs food. And Jesus, again, is using food as an example. Who, when you needed, when your child needed something to sustain them, would give you something, give them something that could not sustain them? We would never do that. And so again, he's making a distinction to our Father in heaven. Why won't you trust the Father? That if you truly need something, if there is truly something that is necessary for you to receive so that you can have life, whatever whatever withhold that from you. If we who are sinful have that figured out, how couldn't our Father in heaven, who's perfect, have that figured out? Contentment always comes down to who are you going to trust. So again, I want to go back and I want to read again. Our scripture, our key scripture today, uh, this is Philippians 4, 11 through 13. It says this. It's not that I'm referring to being in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret. If you're a Bible underliner, underline the secret of being well-fed and of being hungry. I'm of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you have this guy, Paul, who says, I got it all figured out. I know how to be hungry, and I know how to be well fed. So I want to give you a little context on this guy named Paul, because you know it might be easy to assume, well, he was you know, a follower of Christ. He must have had like you know, angels that are watching over him at night, and you know, he must have had the, the latest and greatest technology. You know, I mean, he just must have everything taken care of for him. He must have had a really easy life. Most of you have heard this at one time or another. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. This is describing, this is Paul describing his own experience. He said, five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was adrift to the sea on frequent journeys in danger. In danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, hungry and thirsty, and often without food, cold, and naked. This is the guy that went, went on in Philippians to say, I know the secret to contentment. I know how to endure hardship with contentment. I know how to stay humble when I'm overwhelmingly blessed. I know how to maintain contentment when I have everything and when I have nothing. So anyone who reads Philippians 4, 11 to 13, anyone who reads that should walk away with this burning question inside. What's the secret, right? As Paul says that, he said, I've learned the secret to contentment. So we ought to be asking ourselves, what is the secret? And I'll go ahead and tell you, and, and, and Paul tells you too, that the secret to contentment is that you can do all things to Christ. That's the secret. But, excuse me, you reword that. The secret to being able to do all things through Christ is contentment. But the secret to contentment is trusting your Heavenly Father 
to provide again what is necessary for life. We have to remember that contentment is not a material problem, it's a relational problem. We must learn to trust that God is good, despite our circumstances. But so many times we do the Lord a disservice by deciding whether He's good or not based on what's going on in us. I got to do this for Christmas. God is good. Storm wrecked the city. God must not be good. We as believers in Christ must cling to the truth that our Father in heaven is good no matter the circumstances. That is the key to contentment. Knowing and believing that our Father is good. And if there's something that we need to sustain life that is necessary for life, He would ensure that we receive it. So, if you don't have it, Whatever it is, it is for you. If you don't have it, or you can't afford it, or you can't manage the time you need for it, we must trust that either maybe we don't need it, maybe you don't need it right now, maybe whatever it is is keeping you from something greater, maybe it would destroy you if you have it. Maybe not having it is making you stronger. But regardless of the reason, we must invest our faith in trusting that if it was necessary for life, our loving Father would make sure that we have it, that He would give it to us. Deep contentment requires a deep faith that God is good. He's good. Whether you have what you want or you don't. So as we wrap up, I just want to challenge you. If you have that, that connect card on the back or at the bottom, it says next step. I want to challenge you with the next step uh, before we continue on in our service. I just want to challenge you this week to set aside some time. Maybe it's this afternoon while the kids are taking a nap or while everybody else is asleep. Set aside some time to sit down with the Lord and really honestly and openly ask the Lord, what is, what is really necessary for me to, for me to have a strong, thriving spiritual life? What really is not necessary? You know, for me, I sat down and asked myself that question. What is necessary for me? I've learned that it's necessary for me to have a relationship with Christ. It's necessary for me to be reading God's Word. It's necessary for me to learn how to pray uh, in a, a longer manner than I tend to. Uh, my church family is necessary for me to have life. Uh, my immediate family is necessary for me to have life. What's not necessary? A nice truck. I don't know if you've seen my sweet Toyota Corolla. I mean, it is cool. But, you know, I, you know sometimes I'm always like, man, I just really don't like a truck. I need that, God. Come on. You're a good father. Uh, tons of free time. Uh, that's not necessary for me to have life. Christmas presents are not necessary for me to have life. A cell phone is not necessary for me to have life. 
So I challenge you to make that list and ask the Lord to give you the faith to invest in what is necessary and be content where they receive those that are not necessary.